invite you to turn with me in your copies of God's Word to the Epistle to the Galatians. That's Galatians chapter 5. And we'll pick up our reading there at verse 25. That's Galatians 5, 25. And we'll read down to the 10th verse of chapter 6. And beloved, once more here, the inerrant, the infallible, the holy word of the holy God. If we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of his flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Let's the reading of God's holy word. May he bless us richly under it this evening. I suppose these 10 verses of Galatians 6 are numbered among one of the most familiar components of this epistle, especially verses 8 and following. And in many ways, beloved, as you could probably guess, um, every line is itself a series of sermons. Uh, every verse certainly is worthy an almost innumerable number of discourses. And so as we take up these ten familiar and, and pregnant texts, um, we are only looking at these things in a very brief way. And our prayer is that God would use our brief meditations this evening produce in us the very thing the text calls us to. If you remember in our comments before on chapter 5, we are in that portion of the epistle where the apostle is driving home basic exhortations after a rather lengthy and acerbic discourse about gospel truths. You remember that in the fifth chapter, you and I, we encounter that running commentary on those last several lines of Galatians 4 where the apostle, again, gives us that image of, of two households, the household of Hagar and Sinai against the household of Sarah and heavenly Jerusalem. And you remember that he gives us that allegory to drive home a basic pastoral concern, and that is, Galatians, which are you like? Are you like the offspring of Hagar, Ishmael, or are you like the child of the free woman? Are you like Isaac? 
And all the fifth chapter is devoted to basically give the Galatians something of a commentary, a further explication of what he means. Well, when we come to our text this evening, he is continuing that work, notwithstanding the chapter divisions in our English Bibles. The apostle is not giving us here a disjointed collection of parenthetical or digressive remarks. The apostle is continuing the same exhortations that flow from that work he began at the end of chapter 4. You remember in verses 13 to 26 of chapter 5, the apostle, first of all, began to turn these things into exhortations. He said, you're children of promise, you're children of liberty, you're like Isaac, and therefore live like it. This is a moment where the apostle is saying, be like what you already are. Behave like children of promise because you are children of promise. And so the command of verse 25, if we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. That's the general exhortation. The exhortation is to walk in true holiness. And if you remember our comments from the last portion of this fifth chapter, you remember that there's only one way to walk, as the apostle here commands. In other words, there's only one way that produces true holiness. The legalist can produce only the works of the flesh. But he who has laid hold of Jesus Christ by faith, and he only, is made truly holy. It is a call, in other words, to live by faith upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and so walk holily before the Lord. All of that, beloved, I suppose you and I understand, at least in an abstract level. But in our text, the apostle really anticipates a very natural question. These are all very good themes. But what does this really look like? What does it really look like to walk in the Spirit? And if we could even draw that question to a bit more of a concrete application, what does it look like to manifest the fruit of the Spirit practically? That is the principal question that our text answers this evening. And so for us to understand what the apostle is driving us to, as he writes as the Spirit's penman, we come to our text this evening. And in verse 2, you have something of a general summary of these 10 verses. Here the apostle says very clearly, very concisely, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, if you remember... In chapter 5, verse 14, the apostle says something quite similar. He says there, all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now, so in verse 14 of chapter 5 and in verse 2 of chapter 6, the apostle is commanding the Galatian churches to fulfill a law. Now, if you remember in chapter 5, the context is the law that is summarized in the Decalogue given at Sinai. And as you look at these two texts, the apostle is saying the law of Christ enjoins the self-same thing in substance that the law given at Sinai enjoined. In other words, beloved, the law that was given at Sinai is a summary in substance of the very law of Christ. Allow me to put it to you this way. Both laws, the law of Christ and the law from Sinai, the Decalogue, Both command love to one's neighbor. 
but in two different forms, or if you like, with two different promises annexed. As it comes to us through the covenant of works, the law says, love your neighbor, do this, and live. In other words, by obeying this law, then you have right and title to life. But the law of Christ carries the same command, but with a different promise, or really with a different explanation. Because you live, love your neighbor. You who have already attained life, you who have attained life through Christ, now live like him. You see, the laws are substantially the same in precept, but different in form. One would make obedience, your obedience, the meriting cause of life. The other enjoins obedience because Christ has merited that life for you. Now, why is the apostle stressing this? And why the focus on the second table? Why not address the entirety of our duty to God? Well, of course, the apostle here is driving home that same pastoral question he began with. And that is, how will you demonstrate that you are truly a child of promise? You'll do that by clearly, clearly manifesting your second table obligations. Again, as James writes, That is, pure religion undefiled, something that is evidence of the sincerity of your faith to the world, and by extension, a confirmation of the power of the gospel, that it indeed makes men holy. And so the apostle here is saying, you are to walk holily, you are to live as those who keep the law of Christ. Now we could stop there, I suppose, but I want to draw your attention to verse 10, the last portion of our text. Here the scriptures read, As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men. There's a summary of what he began in verse 2. Do good unto all men, but then note this, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Now, first of all, friend, we understand the apostle is making a distinction. He's making a distinction between the world, here designated all men, and the church, which quite notably he calls the household of faith. Now, we know what he means, but can I direct your attention just for a moment to that striking, striking name he gives the church here. He calls her the household of faith. Why is that staggering? Well, it's staggering because if you think of what the apostle is doing up to this point, he's talking to children of promise. In other words, he's talking to the children of Sarah, who are so by faith to the household of promise. And again, if we're paying attention at all to the epistle, when he says we are the household of faith, if we are a home, as it were, in the allegory, we are of faith as opposed to works. Everything in the epistle, every time you encounter the words of faith in this epistle, you understand the apostle is setting that in stark contrast to being of works. And so how is he calling the church of God? He's saying that they are the household, that is, the children of promise, who are so by faith. If I can draw this even even more to something of of an application, the apostle is enjoining these Galatians to be the opposite of Ishmael. Ishmael was in the household but he persecuted the children of promise. 
Note that the command here is inverted. Do good unto all men, but especially to the children. Promise. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But the apostle is driving home this general idea that if you are the children of promise, you are to act like it. You are not to be like Ishmael. You're to be like Isaac. Now, beloved, as we look at this text, the apostle is obviously stating very clearly, and this could very well be our theme, that you and I, we must strive to live graciously. We must strive to live like children of promise. But if I can take you back to the question I asked just a few moments ago, that very practical question of what does that look like? Well then, friend, I think the text answers that in three ways. We are to live graciously, and what that means is we are to live in meekness, we are to be engaged in ministry, and we are to be mindful. And so I want us to focus on that just briefly this evening. First of all, the meekness that belongs to this gracious living, this living as children of promise. In verse 1, he begins with a command. He says, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness. Now, beloved, before we go any further, this word spiritual is a very important word and often misunderstood. When the world hears the word spiritual, and often when we hear the word spiritual, we think of something of a mystic. If somebody describes themselves as a spiritual person, what they mean is they think about things that are not physical. But that's not at all the New Testament usage of the word. Never could you translate the word spiritual so in our scriptures. The word in the original literally translated means spirit-filled, always and only. And so the apostle is saying, you who are filled with the spirit of God, you are to restore such an one in the spirit of meekness. If you are, then do thus. Now that's the command. But that's not all the apostle gives us. In that first verse, he also gives us the reason behind it. Considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. There's the reason. Friend, there are two ways I want us to look at that very briefly this evening. The one way is to look at it linearly. In other words, what the apostle is doing is he's saying, you who are spirit-filled people, you are also self-conscious. You know that you're weak. You've considered yourself, and you know that you too could fall. Therefore, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness. That's one way, but friend, we can also reverse it. This can also be something of an evidence of somebody who's spirit-filled. If you restore such an one, or carry yourself to a brother in meekness, because you have considered yourself rightly, this is evidence that you are indeed filled with the Spirit of God. In the Apostles' argument, you can read it both ways, and you should. You see, what this text is calling us to here is a kind of meekness that leads us to live mercifully and sensibly dependent upon God's grace. And friend, I just want to make a brief comparison under this point. So much more could be said, but but think just for a moment about the Galatian problem. As we've looked at the difficulties in these churches, time and again we're confronted with the Judaizer, the legalist, And and the legalist comes to the churches in Galatia with a very high view of themselves. And this induces them 
This induces them to austerity, to, to an uncharitable disposition toward Paul, and to a kind of to a kind of harshness that is absolutely opposite of that of the apostle. But I want you to notice where that flows from. They thought highly of themselves, and therefore they dealt uncharitably. The apostle is inverting the whole thing. The Christian is to be self-conscious, and in such a way that that produces meekness and charity. Do you see how the two are absolute opposites? The legalist in the book of Galatians is thus. He says, they zealously affect you, but not well. Yea, they would exclude you that you might affect them. In other words, they come with all of their trappings and all the veneer of their piety, boasting in themselves, even to the detriment and hurt of the Galatians. Such is their austerity. Legalism produces an uncharitable disposition. What of the apostle? Just a few verses later, he says this. He says, my little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you, I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice. A man who is conscious of his own weakness, he said that in the previous verses, is the one who's possessed of the greatest charity. Beloved, that's always the way of it. And it's always possible to read that in both directions. What I mean by that is, if I am, if I am boasting in myself and self-righteousness, if I'm thinking too highly of my duties, then I will, I will be uncharitable toward my neighbor. And if I'm uncharitable toward my neighbor, beloved, it's always proof positive that I'm th- thinking far too highly of myself and my own righteousness. The apostle says the spirit-filled person will demonstrate that they are so because they consider themselves weak and so they deal charitably with others. And so this first point really asks us the question, does my self-consciousness produce in me this kind of charity and this loving disposition? In other words, does it make me more like Isaac or Ishmael? But that's not all the apostle says here. As we come to our second point, in verse 6, he enjoins that those who live graciously are also those who have a care for ministry. In verse 6, he says, Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. Now, the word communicate in the original here is give a share or a portion to. And so it's a command very similar to that which you find in 1 Timothy 5, where the apostle says, Thou shalt not muzzle an ox while that treadeth out the corn, and the labor is worthy of his reward. In other words, you who have sat under the preaching of the gospel, you are to remunerate the servant of God who preached to you the truth of God. That's a very simple command. It's very straightforward. But, but if I can press a little bit further this evening, why does that show up in this text? Of course, it's a command that for all time and every circumstance is quite good. But why does it appear here? I think an answer to that comes from what the apostle has already told us in the fourth chapter. He asks the Galatians there, he says, Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? In other words, in their legalism, 
They've begun to despise the preacher of the gospel. That is the preacher of the gospel of free grace. They, they of course, love the Judaizer and the legalist, but they despise the one who preaches the gospel that is for sinners and renders all glory only to God. He's urging them to change their affection. That they would have an interest in the preaching of the gospel of free grace. And instead of counting that preacher an enemy, that they would count him so much a friend and so much an instrument of their good that they would remunerate him. Now, beloved, I know this certainly applies to to paying the preacher, but but it's far beyond that. And I think a broader application is, is more necessary. The apostle is enjoining here the Galatians to support the work of the gospel of free grace, to throw themselves behind it. And beloved, that is a mark of grace. If they are earnestly engaged in seeking seeking to have this gospel proclaimed, then it's a clear indication that they are those who are spirit-filled, children of promise. They are those who then will say, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good good things. Romans 10.15, Isaiah 52.7. But the apostle here is really giving us a sign, if you like, a picture of one who's been rightly touched by this gospel. I want you to think just for a moment by way of illustration, how Naaman thought about the Jordan. You remember he he thought it was a contemptible stream compared to all of those that he knew from home. He thought it was a small thing. But did he think it was a small thing once he found it was an instrument to his healing? Well, no. See, beloved, that is how the believer looks at kingdom work. When the Christian recognizes that, that, the, that the ministry of the gospel and all of its various forms and works, when that has been an instrument to their soul's good by drawing them to free grace, they won't despise it even if, as it did to the Galatians, come in the form of the Apostle Paul, weak and trembling. They will rejoice and they'll submit so as to support the work of the kingdom. But our third and our final point, and one that really undergirds all the apostles setting before us, is that this life of graciousness is also a life of mindfulness. Now again, verse 7 is perhaps the most familiar part of us, part of this text to us, and that it is simply the words, be not deceived. God is not mocked. I want you to notice two things. I want you to notice, first of all, that's an exhortation. Do not be deceived. That is a command. But I also want you to recognize that this is quite general. He's not just referring to verse 6, where we have the remuneration of the gospel ministry. He has in view the idea, all of those things by which God could be mocked, the Galatians are to remember They are to consider themselves, to keep themselves from deception. And so in the 8th verse, he elaborates. He says, he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the spirit shall of the spirit reap life everlasting. And so the image is that of a farmer, a farmer with two fields. 
There is the field of the flesh, and then there's the field of the spirit. And this farmer sows either to the field of the flesh and reaps its harvest, or he sows to the spirit and reaps his. Now, friend, what is the field of flesh? Well, if you look at verse, uh, if you look at chapter 5, verses 19 and following, you'll find a list of the works of the flesh. And you'll notice that that list includes things like adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, and also things like idolatry, hatred, wrath, heresies. In other words, beloved, the works of the flesh are both those things that are external, those gross and enormous sins that that is open to all the world, as well as those sins that are only known to the heart. And so to sow to the flesh is to give oneself to those things. But it's not just that. Beloved, if we've been paying attention to what the Apostle is saying to us in the sixth chapter, it's far more expansive. In verse 6, He is speaking about an interest, taking an interest in the work of the kingdom. And so the implication is that it is sowing to one's flesh as well to not give to the work of the gospel. And we can go even a step further. As you remember, verse 10 concludes with a very general statement. It is also sowing to the flesh not to do good unto all men. In other words, sowing to the flesh involves sins of commission and omission. It involves those enormous sins that are given to us in chapter 5, as well as that selfishness that would lead us to have an uncharitable disposition to our brother, or would lead us to think other things are more important than the work of the gospel. All of those are sowing to the flesh. And so what is it to sow into the Spirit? Again, if we've been looking at the epistle carefully, we recognize that to live in the Spirit is to live graciously. That is, not only to live with certain dispositions, but but to live in such a way that you are living out of the work of Christ by faith. In other words, you're not just doing things. That's not what it means to live in the Spirit. You're engaged in religious duty from an evangelical principle. In other words, you are working to God, living to God, Because of your life in Christ, because he has merited life for you, you live. That's what it means to sow in the Spirit. Now, there's a parallel text in our own passage to these very familiar verses. And it's verses 4 and 5. So let me just take you back just for a moment. I want you to note the parallels and ideas. Verses 4 and 5, the text reads, Let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. The word burden in this text, in in the fifth verse here, is not the same word burden that's given to us in verse 2. Our translators didn't distinguish, but in the Greek they are distinguishable. The word burden in verse 5 is the idea of verdict. Every man shall bear their own verdict. In other words, every man's work will be tried, and every man must bear however that trial concludes. If you hold those two texts together, verses 7 and 8 and verses 4 and 5, there are a couple of things that come to us. 
First of all, the calling here is to try our works, to see whether we are planting in the field of flesh or planting in the field of spirit. This is the time to try those works. That's the command of verses 4 and 5. And why are we to try those works? Well, verses 7 and 8 remind us that there will be a final arbitration, a final trial. There is to be a trial now, approving of your works now, because there is coming a time where those things will be finally determined. Now, friend, as we close this evening, I want you to notice here that the command then for the believer is to live carefully and watchfully, to prove your own works now, and to do so mindful of the judgment that is to come. And I also want you to notice, beloved, that there is perhaps a sense in this text that we can often overlook. In this text, the apostle says there's no neutrality. You're to prove your works, and you're to know that there's a coming judgment because there is no neutral ground. In other words, everybody sows. The question is just in which field are you sowing? You see, beloved, in this text, no nation can be like Switzerland. None can claim neutrality. And if I can be even a bit more forthright, no moment is a neutral moment. No act is a neutral neutral act. And well, so what this command calls us to do is to call us to be like the farmer. The farmer who's anticipating perhaps a hard winter, perhaps a famine. What he does in that case is he watches his crop carefully. He knows there's coming a time when planting will be over. And so he watches carefully the grounds before him. He watches his field. The command is the same for us. And so, beloved, as we close, I want you to notice, first of all, that there is here a point of of examination. And that is actually a question of examination. The apostle says that we're called to prove our works. If we are spirit-filled people, if we are children of promise, we're to prove our works. Do we do that? Are we a mindful people? Beloved, I would submit to you that our generation of all generations would not be a mindful generation. Um, We are called to be a people who weigh over our lives, who who think, really at the end of every day, how has the grace of God been manifest in my life and also how have my sins been made manifest? The apostle calls us to try those things, to put them, as it were, to the test, because there is a test coming. But there's also another question of examination that we can't miss. Beloved, the command here is very basic, and that is that we are to live as children of promise, and so we live for God. We work as it were, laboring in the field of the Spirit, not in the field of the flesh. And what does that mean? As I said to you already, that that idea of sowing to the flesh is far more broad than often we think. Sowing to the flesh is simply putting anything above Christ. If the Lord has denied something that is otherwise good to you, 
but you did not, but you begrudge the Lord for denying it to you. Beloved, that is sowing to the flesh. If I have some worldly interest that is before some work that the Lord has called to my hand for his sake, that is sowing to the flesh. If, if I'm one who thinks so highly of myself that I'm uncharitable to my brother, that too is sowing to the flesh. And so, beloved, the question is not generally, which field do you sow in? How have you sown to the field of the flesh even today? But there is comfort in this passage that we can't miss either. I want you to notice that as you look at verse 4, he says that those who prove their own work and who have cause for rejoicing will rejoice in themselves. Now, what does he mean by that? He doesn't mean that the motions of grace or or the acts of faith that, that he finds in himself are meritorious, that they can stand of, their, of themselves and therefore the man can be proud of any work that he does. That's not at all what the apostle means. The idea is, is that as he sees the motions of grace in the soul, he rejoices in that work for Christ's sake. In other words, as he sees that token of grace, as he sees that work of holiness that is wrought by the Spirit of God, then, beloved, he is also made happy. I want you to note, beloved, though we speak often about the mourner in Zion, and we ought to, it is still only true that the holiest men are only the happiest men. The only way to true happiness is true and spirit-wrought holiness. The apostle says such a man will rejoice. He sees that work in himself. And so, beloved, the exhortation is to try our works. It's a duty. We are called to this work to see how we are. Are we children of promise or are we children of the bondwoman? Are we sowing in the field of the flesh or that of the spirit? And the second exhortation is that you and I are to endeavor in Christ. Endeavor in Christ to be and so behave what we already are. Children of promise. May the Lord lead us in that work for his own namesake. Amen.